1: I'm J.R. Lowry. This is Career Sessions, Career Lessons, which is brought to you by Pathwise.io. Pathwise is dedicated to help you live the career you deserve with a mix of courses, coaching, community, and content. Basic membership is free, so visit Pathwise.io and join today. Today, my guest is Dan Petrozzo, who I met when Dan joined Fidelity as Chief Information Officer back in 2008. Dan is an investor, advisor, and board member currently working as a partner with Oak HCFT, a venture capital and private equity firm investing in healthcare and fintech. Dan started his career somewhat non-traditionally in the middle of his college experience working at Bell Labs. He later moved into financial services and spent time at Deutsche Bank and at Morgan Stanley prior to joining Fidelity, where we met. After leaving Fidelity, Dan spent time leading technology in Goldman Sachs' asset management division and then founded a cloud computing company called Verilum that was eventually sold to Intralinks. Dan has largely been with Oak HCFT since then and has served on a number of boards spanning a range of tech-centric businesses. He is the author of the Fast Forward MBA in Technology Management and a co-author of Successful Reengineering, both of which he wrote in his early career days. He is a past member of the Board of Trustees of St. Luke's Hospital in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, where he has strong roots to the local community. Dan is a graduate of Moravian University, where he earned a dual degree in political science and information systems, and he also earned a law degree at Seton Hall. He splits his time between Pennsylvania and New York. Dan, welcome. Good to have you. Nice to see you again. Yeah, you too. So I don't know much about your sort of early days. Where did you grow up? I grew up in the
2: mostly in the western part of New Jersey, bordering Pennsylvania, the northwest corner of New Jersey. So you've probably heard the song allentown by billy joel oh yeah my residence was sort of 20 minutes from that city And the town i grew up in sort of had the same features that were being discussed by billy joel in that yeah
1: steel and coal mines and all of that kind of thing
2: yeah you know it was an end of an era like the entire yeah. era we had ingersoll rand and mack truck and Bethlehem steel and all these companies that either got much smaller or just sort of disappeared
1: yeah. My daughter went to school at Franklin and Marshall. So when she was there, we were back and forth. I'll say that part of Pennsylvania. There's an amusement park in Allentown too, or near Allentown that my son has made me go to on at least one occasion. That was one-tenth of the size. In your childhood days? My childhood,
2: right? There was a one wooden roller coaster that yeah. may still be there. I'm not even sure. I haven't been there in a number of years. Probably. They keep them and then they upgrade them. So <laughs> anyway, so what was your first paid job? I did everything when I was a kid, right? So I was fairly entrepreneurial. So I remember when I was maybe third grade, that sort of time frame, sort of selling Christmas cards door to door and mowing lawns and delivering newspapers and sort of anything to, to get money and really progress from there to work in places like truck stops and pizza places and on and on.
1: Yeah, I mowed lawns. If I ever sold things door to door, it was generally to raise money for like Boy Scouts or some school thing or things like that. But anyway, how did you end up deciding to go to Moravian and why poli-sci and information systems as a combination?
2: Yeah, so I know that the session's about career. It'll be a good lesson for anyone who listens slash watches to how not to do things. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> maybe you can get to a good spot, but it's not the sort of the route one would take. So I was a very good student in high school and pretty serious about like doing well. Not a big studier, but was pretty smart and able to sort of get find my way and get pretty decent grades. No one in my family had been, there was no college graduates. No one was sort of focused on you needed a go to college to do something with your life or anything along those lines. I was kind of out there on my own. Part of being out there on my own was taking the SATs at the time. No one sort of told me you needed to relearn what you learned in like your sophomore year in in or freshman and sophomore year in, in high school for the SATs, which were, I was sort of taking calculus or calculus too. And that's not what the SAT is about. So my grades were great. My SAT scores kind of sucked. I was... Disillusioned. I actually wanted to go to Lehigh and didn't get into Lehigh. I was a cross country runner and the coach at Moravian called me and said, like, just come to Moravian at the last minute, kind of ended up in Moravian. And so when I got there at some point in my life, I was thinking about becoming a lawyer. The on ramp to legal back in the early eighties was political science, and that's how it started. What happened after that was I ended up getting a summer job after my sophomore year in college. And I left college for two years when I went back and decided maybe I should get my degree. That's where I tacked on the stuff I had already been working on in technology as a second dual degree or whatever it was at the time.
1: And what were you doing in that break? I mean, in the break from school, I mean. Yeah, it was
2: a break from school, but it was a life lesson. I had the summer job. And what happened at the summer job was right after AT&T sort of broke up. We were working to try to figure out which customers were AT&T's customers and which customers belonged to the R box. This was mm-hmm. a team, and I'll show my age, but we were reading microfiche, <laughs> making phone calls. Like I said, we would call up the Lowry Electric in Framingham, Mass, and ask if it's the same company as Lowry Electric in some other part of the country. The net of it is, I'm doing this for a while. It was kind of silly. I asked the supervisor, I said, we're pretty unproductive here. And I think that if I can talk to the people that program the computers that spit out this microfiche, we can actually do things better. Mm-hmm. So. That led to them saying, hey, that's pretty smart. Can you just stay? Why go back to school? Why don't you just stay? And I can't remember what they were paying me, but it was better than sitting in class, which I was kind of bored with. And so I stayed on. And then the entrepreneurism sort of kicked in. And what I saw was happening was that area was hiring a bunch of contractors, both technical people and sort of other types. I started a basically a a staffing agency. So at the time I was 19, I think I had 35 or so people on billing. And I was sort of off to the races. And I built that business before I finished college.
1: What did you end up doing with it when you went back to school?
2: What I realized, what happened was I ended up using that first sort of assignment to convince some people at Bell Labs to hire me as a a contractor. I didn't realize that it was a job that nobody wanted. So I thought I was just being clever because I really didn't have the appropriate skills. I found myself seven stories underground Outside in some place in Northern Virginia, working on something for the Defense Department, and never seen the light of day for maybe six to eight months or something along those lines. So I thought I was pretty smart getting the job, but it turns out I was kind of a sucker. Although I learned everything I needed to know about computers within that short period of time, what happened was running a staffing group it wasn't very inspiring. Basically, as things sort of fell off, I reduced the people. Billing, and maybe when I finally went and decided that I was going to do go get a real job much many years later, maybe I was the one on billing and maybe one or two other people, so it just sort of wound and never like was sold or put out of business, but it kind of wound down. I went to school at night when I came back. I didn't go during the day. I did all of my education
1: other than two years in the evening, including your seat in hall time when you went to law school. yeah, it was all in the evening, so what were you doing workwise when you were going to school at night? The first time? Well, you had the Bell Labs experience, right? And then what came after that? I finished
2: my undergrad and then I started going to law school. So I was still doing work at Bell Labs when I started. And then before I finished law school, that's when I transitioned to Morgan Stanley, right? So maybe right towards the end of my law school time.
1: And at that point, presumably you decided not really interested in being a lawyer.
2: When I went there, I never had the intention of practicing. I know I said I wanted to be a lawyer when I was a kid, but I had the desire to be like a practicing attorney. I had some momentum. And so I figured I should, while I was still going to school, I should just go to grad school right away versus waiting another eight years. And you chose law school still. Yeah. Well, I mean, at the time I was pretty deep in computers. So the idea of going for like a master's in computer science didn't make a lot of sense. And Mm. I was in business. I had run my own businesses and that didn't seem very inspiring. I took some practice GMAT exams. The thing about law school, which was great, is that it's a different way to think about things, which was helps me to this day, actually.
1: A lot of people end up going to law school. Maybe they don't ever practice, maybe they practice for a bit of time and then change, but it gives you a way of thinking analytically and critically about something.
2: And honestly, both of us have worked in regulated industries. And so when you're a regulated industry, there's laws and there's lawyers and there's compliance people and there's all these people that you need to communicate with. And it's a lot easier to communicate with them when you are able to actually understand what it is they are trying to accomplish and do.
1: Yeah, it's very true. I mean, I've certainly spent a lot of time, as you said, we've both worked in regulated industries. There are certain points in my life where I've felt like I might as well have been sitting in the law department. I was spending so much time on legal issues. So sometimes that just happens. You wrote a couple of books back in the 90s. You wrote a book called Successful Reengineering with John Stopper. How did you meet John and how did the book come about?
2: One of the things we started doing when I was at Bell Labs was we were doing process redesign. So this was kind of like right around when like Michael Hammer was doing all Mm -hmm. the reengineering stuff. Since we were working in a place like Bell Labs, we were a little bit more scientific what we were doing. So we were using advanced statistical techniques and actually modeling software to redesign order management processes, parts of AT&T. Mm-hmm. and it was both effective, like what we were doing, like it made a lot of progress and changed things, and it was pretty pioneering. Me and John and this guy who was older than us, Jim Pinnell, put together a paper that we presented at the American Society of Quality Control back in, whatever it was, 1991, something like that. Being never sort of satisfied with anything. My objective when we went to this conference was, I want to get a book contract because I felt that if we actually published something that we could start a consulting, I didn't know where it was going to lead necessarily, but it would increase our brand value and open up opportunities. And so what happened was I went out there and I just met with a bunch of publishers and basically convinced one of them to give us a contract without actually having anything written other than this paper that we would put together something. And Jim being smart, Or he was the smartest of the three of us, like the real intellectual. He opted out, like he didn't want any part of it. And so John and I decided to put that together. And that sort of was, and oddly enough, that was sort of the the beginning of everything else. That book, this story was that the book ended up in the hands. So John went to Columbia. Mm -hmm. A woman that worked at Columbia as like a professor or something like that was doing either consulting work or HR leadership training or something for Morgan Stanley working directly for the chief information officer at the time. So he ends up with a copy of the manuscript before it comes out right? and says to the woman, since John went to Columbia, I want to hire this guy. So he hired John to leave Bell Labs and go to Morgan Stanley. Mm-hmm. And then a bunch of us all ended up there from like that same unit, if you will, that was in Bell Labs. So Everyone sort of transitioned at that point from telecommunications to finance. But the book was the stalking
1: horse, if you will.
2: So it didn't sell that many copies, but it generated a fair amount of revenue for the overall team over the years.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, as you say, it got you set on your way and got you into financial services and you were off from there. Yeah. Like I said, I didn't know where it was going to end up, but that's where it ended up. And what about the other one, the fast forward MBA in technology management? Yeah. The second one
2: was a favor to my editor. So she moved from wherever she was to John Wiley. I'm sure you've seen they had these fast forward MBA books on all kinds of topics, whenever that was the late nineties. And I said, uh, she just basically strong armed me to do it. It was more of a, the first one was like a, we're certainly not novelists or anything, but the first one was actually like a pursuit of intellectualism to some degree and sort of expression. Mm -hmm. The second one was, it's more of a research report, some tips and tricks here and there, but a lot of sort of, here's what you should do, backed up by somebody doing something in some research. That's how that second one came about.
1: You were at Morgan Stanley, you were also at Deutsche. What were the kinds of things that you guys were doing in the technology space at the time? When I got to Morgan Stanley, I ended up pretty quickly
2: thereafter. I came in as kind of a like an operating officer type person working for one of the senior MDs there. Like a bunch of things happened and I ended up being responsible for distributed systems at Morgan Stanley. And what distributed systems meant was like all the non-mainframe, all the technology that supported servers and databases and those types of things. This is mid nineties. So at the time, not many companies had thousands of, computers that were networked globally. It was really finance, right? That was like, who did it? And there was no sort of infrastructure to, you could just go buy. We essentially built our own kind of cloud computing platform, putting it together with software we wrote, hardware we bought, and interesting things like distributed file systems and the like. And so the objective for us was... We needed to make, we had a lot of developers writing software for the various trading desks and those developers needed to be productive and they needed to do things like be able to make it so that when they released a binary into production that it happened globally within seconds. We built stuff that made it so that People could do what take for granted today. So it was fun because it was very mature. The technologies were very immature, and it was very business focused. So although it was infrastructure, it had like it was very clear why you were doing what you were doing,
1: and so it was very exciting at the time. You and I met at Fidelity. That was around the time of the crisis. I think you joined just a couple months before. Did you know before you came in that this? corporate transformation program was going to be a big part of your role as within the context more broadly of being chief information officer? Yeah, yeah. So I ended up agreeing
2: to to Fidelity in May 2008. The recruiters called maybe sometime in 2007. And I wasn't ready to make any sort of move at that time. Then a bunch of like really additional like sort of bad things started happening at Morgan Stanley. And so I went and met with the team there. And yeah, this was all the idea that we needed to make things run more business-like at Fidelity was sort of on my watch before I joined. So it was stuff I knew about. And I was kind of trained in some of this because when I went back to Morgan Stanley, I went back to the wealth management slash retail part of the business. right? And it was a disaster. And so technologically, business-wise, a heavy sort of Lift and change in the 2002 through 2006 time frame. I sort of got pretty good training for what it takes to sort of change
1: things at scale. Was the Fidelity experience the biggest change program that you've been part of over the years?
2: I'd say by actual measurement of change created, the work that I did at Morgan Stanley was probably more significant in terms of what was actually accomplished money spent on a change program. (laughs) I think the Fidelity effort was much larger. The coordinated scope of what was on the table to change it, Fidelity was much larger. When I came back to Morgan Stanley and we were doing similar things, we never called it anything. Yeah, you just did it. People just did different things in different parts of the business, you know, and technology was doing one thing, operations was doing another thing. And The front office was doing its thing and it was pretty urgent at the time. We were in a lot of regulatory problems. The business was losing money and there was just a lot to do. And so where I think Fidelity, things had been, even though there was some trouble, even in 08, I think it was relatively insulated overall. Oh, absolutely. So there was a little bit of a scare with the money markets. But outside of that, I'd say that that business mostly benefited from the fact that it wasn't part of the New York financial scene.
1: Having been through the Morgan Stanley effort, what did you take away in terms of what it takes to run a successful, big-scale, large-scale change program and what the pitfalls are?
2: The hardest problem, and it speaks to just sort of even the day-to-day at companies, no matter what you're trying to do, is making sure that everyone's incented and aligned on the same thing. And it's really hard to get that right. Like I've never been part of an experience where where people got it totally right. So I think that certainly at Fidelity, there was a top-down commitment to do stuff, but it was always sort of, a lot of folks felt it was optional. You had a family dynamic in terms of the way who owned the company. And so it just made some of these things challenging and difficult. And there you had a whole other special Thing related to how compensation was created over a number of years. And so trying to do things over short periods when people were paid over long periods, it just, there was like all kinds of impedance. Getting people, getting executives, and this is one of the reasons why a lot of private equity actually works, because when they buy a company, load up the executive team, everyone sort of gets paid if the thing works. They kind of don't really get paid if it doesn't work. And they know that their objective is either take the thing public or to resell it. So from the get-go, whoever signs up and gets in the boat is kind of like, they're all at least incented to row in the same direction. Yeah. Where in existing companies that you're not, it's not going through a day transaction. You've got all these lingering things around and deals that were made and people and, and sometimes it's culture where you have too many new people. Sometimes it's culture where you have too many people existed before, just very, very harsh which is why I think you're almost better off not making it naming things and just doing things. And if you just do things and you say, this year, we're going to do X, Y, and Z, and it's going to improve either our top and bottom line the following way, or restructuring because we think things are too disorganized doing it or
1: wasting money, just do it. Don't call it anything, just do it. I kind of lean toward that style as well, just in terms of how I manage myself. And at the same time, a lot of people, they like putting the programs around it and creating the buzz. And it's like the perception and reality. Sometimes that can work for you if you're good at marketing. Sometimes it works against you if you spend too much time on that and don't have the substance to back it up.
2: Yeah. Look, I think it's just change is very, very difficult when you don't have major reasons to do it.
1: Yeah. I mean, you could argue we did it fidelity to a degree. I mean, they were certainly feeling the pinch but they were never going to fail. They were never anywhere close to that point like the big Wall Street banks were. So that burning platform, so to speak, was not really there for that transformation program. Yeah, I would agree with
2: that. I think that's the case. Yeah.
1: I know you spent time at Goldman. Then you went out and branched out on your own. So how did how did the cloud computing Verilum idea come about? So I left Fidelity
2: with... My mom was ill. Our president was leaving, and he was kind of the reason I wanted to be there. So I had no, it's another time, like the book and like other things. I had no, like no plan. It was time to leave. I didn't have anything to do, and I just left. So I got a call from Goldman, and a partner role there had opened up, which up until I was hired, it was probably three decades or so before they hired a lateral non-revenue producing partner. Not more regularly, but they hadn't done it for decades. So I felt that, A, Goldman Sachs is a great business and a great company and has great people. I was never a big resume builder per se, but Mm -hmm. it's certainly, there's not that many, there's a finite, it's kind of, there's a finite number of Goldman partners. So I hit the bid and figured out how to get the job, which was harder than doing the job as it turns out. And, but I knew I was only going to stay Three to five years, I didn't know what I was going to do. Like I had no plan. So during the time, I kind of got excited about starting a company again. Right, I had done a a venture back startup back in when I left Morgan Stanley the first time, and felt that would be a good sort of way to end things, if you will. And so that's where I started a business with a person that who worked with me at Morgan Stanley the first time, and we did our first startup together. And he was at EMC after that. And we had this idea, and which still hasn't actually been implemented, but could, that we were going to essentially create a public cloud out of private infrastructure. So essentially making it so that all these private companies that had invested a serious amount of money in data centers and servers and compute could pull together their resources in a way that they could Spike up and down with workload, share with one another, do that type of stuff. Kind of like a co-op, kind of like a cloud. I messed up though, was the, this is one of these things I talked to. We, so we did, it was obviously a big idea. The idea that you're going to go get company A to basically lend its assets out to, for company B to use with security and all kinds of other stuff. Oh yeah. It was certainly a big idea. If we cracked it, it would be great. So unfortunately, because I was still jaded by my first experience raising capital and mm-hmm. dealing with investors, we decided to kind of slow it. Like we put a bunch of our own money in it and we took a little bit of money from some people we like. And that was just a really bad idea because we undercapitalized the business for the idea, right? So some businesses you can bootstrap and get going, but here you needed a lot of money to build technology, a lot of time to be able to get people on board with the idea. You needed to do a whole bunch of things that required capital that we didn't have the capital to do. And because we had a successful exit before, if I was just smart about it, I could have raised $50 million on a napkin to do anything I wanted to do at the time. And I screwed that up. So that left us with, after we muddled along for a couple of years, didn't have any contracts for this sort of core business that sort of have to shift what we were doing, and turn it into more of an enterprise software business. Then I just realized that this is not going, A, the probability of this turning into a multi-billion dollar company is pretty low and we should just sell it, right? Which is what we did.
1: Then you went to Oak, right?
2: Where you are today. What happened was we sold our business to something called Intralinks. It was called Intralinks. And then I worked on the management team there for a year and we sold Intralinks. To ss right? For SSNC. So the first to okay. a company called Synchronos, which was a publicly traded company. Okay. And the plan all along was after that trade was made was for me to sort of transition out. I stayed on for a little bit as a consultant and things got crazy. And then Intralinks ended up being sold separately to private equity and then being sold from private equity to SSNC. Now it's safely tucked away inside of SSNC. While I was there, that's when I got, or that was on one, it got called by a recruiter. So Oak HCFT had spun out of the old Oak investment partners. They were had just raised their second fund and they didn't have any expertise in asset and wealth management business slash tech and were looking for someone who could help basically. And that's how I got there. And then over time decided I was did a few investments. It kind of looked like I was pretty good at it and decided to become an investor.
1: Yeah. So you do a mix of investing, advisory, you've been on a huge number of boards. How's that mix work for you? It's fun.
2: I like investing because it's the art of picking the right asset.
1: Yeah.
2: It's both challenging and it's also a very competitive business. So if you're onto something, usually someone else is onto it as well. So that part of it's just fun. But I get the most fun working with the entrepreneurs. So our investments usually come with a board seat I do do some board work outside of my duties at Oak as an independent board member, but just being in the thick of it with entrepreneurs trying to build businesses. And it's a bit like grandparenting, I guess. I'm not a grandparent, but it's like, yeah, you come in, you don't own the problem, right? Because you just don't. And you have to be comfortable with that. And you can, sometimes you have to be a teacher. Sometimes you have to be a psychologist. Sometimes you need to get out of the way. Like that's all cool. It's fun. I always it's not real work. It's work, but not real work, right? So the stress of operations is not my challenge anymore. And so that feels good. You get to see a lot of
1: different technologies. What are the ones that excite you the most?
2: Like I'm kind of excited by the same things that have always excited me. It's just that it's just a continuum. I think that I've always been excited about the use of data, either create and drive businesses or change operations or something like that, that's evolved over time. It's a problem that evolves and doesn't ever get solved, right? It just gets more complicated. Mm. So I don't like machine learning for the sake of machine learning. Less than 10 years ago, we were still telling people to delete information. Because storage storage costs money. Yes, storage was expensive. It wasn't that long ago. So a lot of the sort of theoretical statistics that exist, the, the models have existed for a very long time. But the combination of like the the data set size to be able to actually do something to manipulate it, that's really a fairly new phenomenon. So we're like in the early innings of like, how do you use large data sets to predict things? How do you use large data sets to serve customers better? Whatever it may be, right? We're just barely out of the gate, right? And so things that use these techniques on data sets in smart ways where it's not science projects. Those things excite me. Then I get excited by just the same thing that excited me when I wrote the first book, which is automation. Mm. Like it's still in companies a very analog world, front to back. Most people don't know, see like what happens after something occurs with like a customer order or something like that. But it's still lots of departments, lots of handoffs. Clunky systems. And it's actually in many ways worse because it's sort of like semi automated in a very stove type way. That's what makes SaaS work. That's what makes companies work that are sort of solving very discrete business process problems or helping stitch together business process. So like I, my, my fascinations around technology kind of really haven't changed that much over a very long period of time. Right, and the good news is the core guts of this stuff hasn't changed in at least in the forty years I've been around it. Yeah, so that's good. So, I'll, like, as long as I stay somewhat current, I could probably at least work another. 30 or 40 years, I guess.
1: Yeah. Do you really want to do that though? Yeah, I actually do. (laughs) (laughs) Good enough. I guess that means you're having fun doing what you're doing. Yeah. So having been an entrepreneur, you work with a lot of entrepreneurs now. What are the things that you see them? And as you said earlier, you can kind of guide, but you can't really tell and you certainly aren't the one doing. What do you see them doing righty? What do you right and what do you see them doing wrong?
2: Every one of these sort of situations is very different. When you're in a young company and you don't have a product yet, or you just barely have a product and you've maybe got your first sales of a product. Both the energy that the person has to, has to have to sort of get it just to that phase, it requires them to sprint really hard. Everybody does everything. There's no nothing. It's very much a survival game for most companies for until they're like a Series C company. Mm-hmm. They're very much in survival mode. And most of the time, things are going wrong right? They're not going right. Like You don't get the customer. You don't get the contract. The contract takes too long to get. The product doesn't really work the way you thought it was going to work. You're just presented with problem after problem after problem. That's the emotional state that like, when I invest that as part of the venture fund, that's the time we're entering, right? They've sort of figured some of these things out. So where they, sort of the biggest mistake I see a lot of companies make, and which is part of the challenge, that you're seeing with the current market conditions is it's almost like a wrestler mentality. They're cutting weight constantly, then they don't have to make weight anymore and then they get fat. They get enough capital to sort of breathe, then they don't focus enough on the operational discipline of the growth. They spend too much money. Maybe not too much money relative to the opportunity, maybe not too much money relative to anything, but they're not disciplined in their growth when they're successful. And I attribute a lot of that to just the pain they had gone through. Telling people, no, you can't hire anyone. We can't have a holiday party. No, we can't do any of these things. So I think that, at least for my companies, that's sort of... Because I tend to end up higher getting involved with companies that have those types of founders too. They're not like the Silicon Valley, Y Combinator... You know, a lot of money thrown at them early. I don't get exposed to a lot of those issues. I think I see people sort of take their eye off the ball a little bit. The one thing that the great entrepreneurs do right is they just adapt, right? If they're presented with challenges and change, their ability to sort of switch and go and switch and go, they, they're not burdened with a heavy risk management genetic profile, or it hasn't been beaten into them yet. And so they're able to not get, set on something. If it's not working, change it immediately. And clearly there there is kind of a direct relationship with experience. And like the less experience somebody has, the better they tend to be at doing that. Their minds not grounded. They're not it worried about framework. They've never been exposed to the bad consequences of making a, like a terrible decision that yeah. but and so Or being told by their boss not to make a decision or some other thing. you know. And so over time, the thing with all these teams evolve, they have to hire the right people at the right times. So that's all the stuff that I get to watch, that they can get the most out of the opportunity. Because I tell the the good ones, the ones who have good companies all the time, like, you may never have another opportunity like this in your life. You can't just think about it in terms of, if I make enough money to retire, I'm good. Because... Like you're building something here and this may be it. Yeah. I you think you're going to get like, you're going to be 32, 33 years old, solve the thing, and then just sort of sit on a beach for the rest of your life probably isn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. All good stuff, though.
1: Yeah. More generally, what your career, like a lot of people's careers, like almost everybody's careers is meandering and things come up and you're mostly opportunistic and sometimes you have clear intent and that factors in sometimes. What advice would you give to people who are listening or watching?
2: You're on a journey, like you're probably going to work for 40 years or something Mm -hmm. like that. So you might as well like enjoy it feel like you're generating impact in whatever you're doing, it's kind of trite. But if you're focused on your career or whatever that's supposed to mean, you're probably not spending enough time figuring out how to generate the impact. And usually the opportunities that occur are a result of something you did, not something you planned. So if you do things and you just do things as best you can, and you hopefully do things better than other people, and you do more things than other people, frankly, opportunities will present themselves. I think that, and then people worry too much about like, should I take this job and what's going to happen if the job doesn't work out and like these types of things? None of that matters. It's like if plan less, do more, and try to have some fun and things, you'll feel better about it, frankly. Just getting a promotion because you sat in your seat and did what you needed to do and thought about that promotion for three years for, before it happened. And how am I going to get the next? Like, I don't know. That yeah. doesn't seem like that much fun to me. Yeah. Like doing stuff. If you're working at a company, whatever company you worked on, if you're not an entrepreneur, they're hiring you to help them make more money. Yeah. Or to make it so that that place doesn't blow up. Whatever it is that they hired you to do, just do more of that. <laughs> right? And it'll be fine. Shit will happen for you.
1: Right? Very true. One last question. What yeah. kind of music do you like to play? It's just
2: rock and punk, like stuff that's not too complicated. And yeah. I'm never going to be like a virtuoso musician. Yeah. I didn't yeah. pick up my guitar until I actually worked at Fidelity. So I started playing in 2009. I was already beyond, way past
1: your teenage years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the finger dexterity was probably a little bit harder to come by at that point. And
2: trust me, it is a instrument that unless you're gifted, it's very physical. You're just somehow gifted with it. You have to work. Yeah. You have to work. My family, they heard a lot of bad, bad, bad guitar playing for a couple of years.
1: Yeah. Dad's at it again. I call myself serviceable now. So serviceable. All right. Well, serviceable is okay. <laughs> You're in better shape than I am on playing any musical instrument at this point in my life, so. Never too late. It's never too late, yeah. Tell me about it. All right, well, we will stop there, Dan. I appreciate this. It's been fun catching up. It's you know. been really, really fun catching up and hope to see you stateside. I'd like to thank Dan for joining me today and sharing his entrepreneurial career journey and the learnings he's had along the way. If you're ready to take control of your career, visit Pathwise.io. And if you'd like more regular career insights, you can become a Pathwise member. Basic membership is free. You can also sign up on the website for the PathWise newsletter and follow PathWise on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks. Have a great day.
0: Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of PathWise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at Pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.